This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 26, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The non-delegation doctrine argues that there are many things only Congress can do, like, you know, make laws. At the Supreme Court last week, the Gundy case, nominally about sex offender registries, might have opened the door to broader review of powers Congress has given away. And Cato's Trevor Burris and Ilya Shapiro say that door is still open. What's well, different than a lot of cases that we file in at the Supreme Court where you have big name lawyers produce bringing up big cases with tons of amici filing and support. We had, we didn't hear about this case because it was uh, appealed by a federal public defender and it was done in form of papyrus, which means they had they waived the filing fees. And she wrote a brief and said there were a bunch of things that you should take, you should, the Supreme Court should consider about this case. But the very, the last one she said was you should consider whether or not the Sex Offender Registration Notification Act, and specifically the fact that it lets the attorney general determine retroactively which people have to register, that that's a non-delegation problem. She put a page and a half, the attorney in this who argued the case at the court, she devoted a page and a half to her brief in this. And she said, uh, she cited one major case. She said, someone else has brought this up before. See, Judge Gorsuch of the Tenth Circuit uh, and this is an important problem, and they took it uh, without any amici support or anything, and it was the first non-delegation, at least on the face, non-delegation case they'd taken in, in quite a while. So specifically, what did Congress delegate to this federal, the to the Department of Justice? They so the they created the Sex Offender Registration Notification Act, and in that they listed all the the crimes basically after the date the act would be passed, that you would have to register with the federal government, especially if you moved interstate. Every state has a Sex Offender Registry Act, by the way. This was just a federal gloss on top of it. But then they said the attorney general can determine which people's past crimes who are currently sex offenders but have you know but had been convicted in the past, which of those crimes will have to register and he or she can do that. Uh, without any guidance whatsoever to sort of determine this. And that might sound like a bad thing that they're punishing past conduct ex post facto, but that's already, that ship has sailed. The court has determined that ex post facto registration is not punishment. So that doesn't apply. What uh, penalties do people face uh, if they find themselves required to register under this federal uh, registry. Oh, they're substantial. Um, I, like if you move and you don't register within a given time, or you don't register within a period after your sentence or after you've been incarcerated, uh, you can have, I mean, up to ten years in prison. I think was the maximum uh, for failing to register, and that's what happened to Herman Gundy. He he moved to New York and didn't register, and he had committed an offense before SORNA, and then the attorney general determined, in his discretion that he was going to apply this law to Herman Gundy. And the question in this case was, well, Congress didn't pass this law. The attorney general just decided this. And this has extreme consequences. This is a criminal statute with extreme consequences to it that the Congress just said, hey, attorney general, just, yeah, you know, you make a choice, do what you think. And that's a, that's a real constitutional problem. Which is why after argument, which took place the first week of term, the first week of October, uh, before Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, and that's a that's a key moment. Uh, the thinking was the uh, the more progressive justices, led by Justice Sotomayor, perhaps, would be concerned about the criminal ramifications of giving to 
the head law enforcement official or any executive branch law enforcement official the power to just create law uh, and doesn't that raise due process concerns in addition to anything else. And so uh, Sotomayor is actually the only justice not to have written a case and not to written an opinion from the October sitting. And so the expectation was she would write some sort of narrow thing only applying the non-delegation doctrine uh, to criminal sanctions. But uh, as we saw today, that's not what happened. There's a backstory here, which, which is like you pointed out, this was argued on the first day of the term. So people, this had been taking a while to be decided. And that usually means there's something going on behind the scenes. This wasn't a justice court. Generally, they'd rather decide something in the case because if you get a 4-4 split, it kind of doesn't do anything. People put a lot of work in and it just that, That's an affirmance without an opinion, yeah. meaning a non-precedential affirmance. It maintains the lower court opinion. So the idea was that they were trying to figure out something. And and I think the wisdom was, that the, as Ilya pointed out, the civil liberties-minded liberal justices would be concerned about the criminal statute of this, but they don't want the non-delegation principle to come back and take away the administrative state or expand in any way. And a lot of the people on the conservative side kind of do want that. So can they actually kind of figure out a way of doing this? And the really interesting opinion of this, aside from Gorsuch's masterful dissent, is Alito's little concurrence, three paragraphs, where he basically throws them a vote. A vote. In my interpretation, I don't know if Ilias is the same, basically to make it 5-3 as opposed to 4-4. Four, four. And he says, quote, um, if a majority of this court were willing to reconsider the approach we have taken for the past 84 years, I would support that effort. So they're not, so he's saying they're not, this isn't a majority, so it's not, I'm not going to support this. But because a majority is not willing to do that, it would be, quote, freakish to single out the provision at issue here for special treatment. I think the word freakish is very interesting in this. And so Alito's basically saying, I might be willing to vote on this on a future case, but I'm not going to do it on this case. And let's just be clear what's going on here. So the four justices in the majority to uphold the conviction to uh, rebuke the uh, reject the constitutional challenge that the Congress can't just delegate to the attorney general all this power are the four uh, liberals, the four democratically appointed uh, uh, justices in an, in an opinion by Justice Kagan. Uh, Alito, in effect, is to allow uh, Justice Gorsuch's dissent joined by the chief uh, and uh, uh, um, and and Justice Thomas, of course, um, to allow that to be published joins with uh, with the majority with the plurality here in in judgment because otherwise it would be five four to four, as we said, with no opinions coming down. So effectively, uh, I saw a great tweet about this that I uh, retweeted and hat tipped. Uh, uh, he, Alito joined the libs to own the libs. That is to to reinvigorate uh, and invite future challenges to uh, the non-delegation doctrine. Justice Gorsuch writes, in a future case with a full panel, I remain hopeful that the court may yet recognize that while Congress can enlist considerable assistance from the executive branch, it may never hand off to the nation's chief prosecutor the power to write his own criminal code. That is delegation running riot. And that's a big signal. I mean, a lot of times... Justices are sending signals to the Supreme Court bar saying, bring another case. Now we have nine justices. Uh, we, we can get a full panel. The real question here is what would Kavanaugh maybe have done in this case? It's not the best case in terms of the facts. It is a sex offender. And that might be something that would affect Alito's vote, possibly. Maybe that's why he said freakish in this case. But they have said that of this doctrine that there hasn't been a, a 
delegation, an over-delegation decided since 1935. And no one, everyone agrees that in principle this has to be true. It, it cannot be the case. I mean, Justice Sotomayor would say if Congress got elected and then they, the next thing they did, you know, after putting, coming into session on January 5th, they said, all right, we've decided that Bob is now going to do the act, the work of Congress and we're all going to go back and raise money back in our districts. And then they just let Bob be Congress, that that would be unconstitutional. Well, the, well, let's be fair. The department <clears throat> of Bob. Yes. The department of Bob. Yes. The department of Bob and all these things and experts. But at some point that has to be unconstitutional. The question is, do we have a line that we can draw? The, in fact, the, the last and only time that the court has struck down an act of Congress on non-delegation grounds was was in 1935. Cass Sunstein wrote a famous article uh, about 15 years ago saying that, you know, in, in, in American history, the non-delegation doctrine had one good year and, uh, you know, 210 or whatever it was at that point, bad ones. So uh, we'll see. What's, what's also notable is that Chief Justice Roberts, who is, uh, by all accounts, the median vote and, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is the court will only go so far or so fast as he wants to, did not write separately joined fully in Gorsuch's uh, full-throated uh, opinion. So to the extent that Kavanaugh is, quote unquote, more conservative or, uh, you know, more reliable from a certain you know, originalist perspective than Roberts, then, you know, can we infer that he would be even safer? I, I don't know that that will be left for the next case, which may be uh, the challenge to President Trump's steel tariffs. There's a peti petition pending now, which Cato filed a brief supporting, challenging uh, on non-delegation grounds the um, the steel tariffs, which you know Congress wrote a very broad statute giving very broad discretion to the executive to to label these. Um, and the lower court th that heard the case, the Court of International Trade, was troubled. You know, could on national security ground the president invoke a tariff on peanut butter? They ultimately, based on precedent, uh, you know, allowed uh, uh, this action, uh, but uh, we'll see if the court uh, has appetite to take this case uh, as the first one uh, coming down after Gundy. And many of the arguments that, that Ju Justice Gorsuch makes in his dissent about how to distinguish a, a good delegation from a bad delegation, it's not an easy question. It's just the court is punted for 80 years to try and figure this out, but he makes many of the same arguments that we make in our brief on the steel tariffs case. There's a difference between letting the executive branch fact find and then do something versus make policy. And so there, at least Gorsuch is interested in these distinctions and we'll see what happens going forward. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and Ilya Shapiro directs Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>